We are back in the book of Judges, and Lord willing, finishing the sermon that I began last week. Of course, last week we were interrupted by that uh, providential, but from a human perspective, untimely migraine uh, that prevented me from being able to speak as I desired to speak. I'm not going to go whole through and re-preach the entire sermon that I already went through, but I will kind of summarize the things that we talked about in the first part of the sermon before going into that which we did not get to last week. And before we move into that, let's just bow for a word of prayer as we ask God to guide our time. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that it is rich. I thank you that we learn from it. Well, there are some texts that are difficult even to wrestle with, texts that uh, we may wonder, uh, what do we do with this? And some would say that this text today falls into that category. And yet as we examine it, as we see it, we see the marvelousness of your truth and your word and what you would desire to communicate to us. We see your faithfulness even to an unfaithful people. So we thank you for that and we do pray for your hand of guidance and your help as we move through this text, and that I would be able to do so by your grace and for your glory. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, with, the, with how things uh, unfolded last week, there's a few different ways that we could try to spin those events that uh, you know, lots of jokes that were flying around. Oh man, what heresy were you about to preach that God just said, nope, you are not going to preach that this day. And we could look at it that way. We had some people that were out of town, so we could like to say, oh, God really wanted these people to hear this sermon today. <laughs> There's a few different ways we could spin things, but we shall not try to, uh, try to go down those roads and read into what we do not have access to knowing the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed that belong to His children forever. And so we give ourselves to that which He has revealed and not try to go into vain speculations about why things may have unfolded the way that they did. Nevertheless, as we are here in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 3, last week we began to examine the particular cycles. Of course, as we have come through the introduction, we have seen what we are anticipating, right? The, the author of the book of Judges has set things up for us, right? He's, he's clued us all in on what we can expect. He's given us the cycle. The people walk with God. They are enjoying peace in the land. They stray from Him. They, they go into a period of rebellion. And so God brings judgment upon them. He, brings, he hands them over into the hand of as the text says, individuals, uh, uh, the surrounding Canaanites that oppressed them and forced them into subjugation. And yet God was merciful to the people. God raised up judges to deliver them, and, and they brought them out under the hand of whoever their oppressors were, and the land had rest for X number of years. That's the pattern that we're going to see continue unfold throughout the book, and then it cycles right back around again. The judge is going to die, and then the people that come afterwards, again, will do evil in the sight of the Lord. This is what we began to see last week as we saw the first cycle in the book of Judges from Othniel. 
and how we saw that he, even in the midst of these things, that the text says that the people forgot the Lord their God. This is Judges chapter 3, verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Of course, these were the fertility gods that we discussed in previous weeks about how, how they would worship these gods and the wickedness that was involved in participating in this worship. They forgot the Lord their God. And last week we talked about how this isn't just like, oh, you know, I knew you were there, but it just slipped my mind. I just forgot. Just, they, they failed to regard God as holy. They failed to acknowledge who God is and, and give heed to His words. This is sim- and similar language is used to describe uh, Eli's sons who are priests to God and yet they lived in wickedness. This is the language of the people as they forget the Lord their God and we find that it is our responsibility to remember. Forgetfulness is a sin all on its own and so we see the people in their forgetfulness and yet God was gracious to rescue them through the hand of Othniel. Last week we talked about how Othniel was, was a Canaanite man. This wasn't a man that we might expect to see raised up to be a deliverer for the people of Israel. He was not an Israelite. And yet this was God's chosen man to lead the people into freedom from the hand of Cushan Rishathiam. And so Israel had rest for 40 years after Caleb, or uh, sorry, Othniel, who was a son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Othniel delivered them. And we see in this text, again, this is is kind of reminding us of what we discussed last week, how the Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel. This was God's chosen instrument. So even though the people were forgetful, we see that God did not forget the people. Though they were a forgetful people, they were not forgotten by the Lord. And that was the first cycle. God raising up a judge, an unlikely hero in the midst of things. But who was the primary actor? Who was the one who was actually working there? Are are we to look at Othniel and raise him up as the hero of the story? No, it was the Lord. God was the one who has at work. Othniel was God's instrument, but it was God who was at work. So the Lord gave Cushan Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, into Othniel's hand. And his hand prevailed over, again, Cushan Rishathiam, Cushan, the double wicked one, right? That's what we talked about last week. His name means the double wicked, which was probably a a nickname given to him by the people of Israel. So that was the first cycle. We see the people moving from sin to suffering to supplication to salvation. And now here we are back around again to the next cycle with Ehud and Eglon. Let's pick things up in verse 12 where, where I was not able to continue on last week. 
Verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites, the the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. If you might notice, if, you're, if you kind of track things out and if you wanted to go through the book of Judges and just kind of chart the cycles and see, okay, how long were they under, uh, under judgment? How long did the land have rest and things? Well, already we have people serving this foreign king 18 years. That is much more than how, how much longer they served under Kushan uh, Rishathium from Othniel. They were under his leader, uh, rulership eight years, and now here they are 18 years before the people cry out. Already we see the degradation in this detail alone of how long it takes for the people to cry out unto the Lord. Let's read on verse 13. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent a tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as, if, as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out from his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Oh, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. What a story. <laughs> what a story. That's a, you know, some people always be, read stories like this and it's like, what do we do with this? Like, how do we think about this story? You know, you, you know, as far as just pure stories go, I mean, this is a pretty good one, right? I mean, this is the story. The kids love this story. It doesn't get much better than this, right? We've got, you know, the, the, the text itself is almost dripping of, of the comedy of the situation. In fact, even as I was hearing, I reading this, I was hearing a little, a little snickerings of things here and there, right? That's, it's, it's a little bit funny, right? There's, there's some comedy in the midst of this. The irony, the mockery of the Moabites, it's just right there in the text. You got Ehud, he's a Benjamite, and even within this detail, there's a little bit of irony that would not be lost on the Israelite re- readers because the name Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. And here we have the left-handed Benjamite 
a little bit of irony in the midst of the story. Because he is left-handed, he's able to conceal this weapon, all right? He's got this, this dagger that he has constructed. It probably would have been a blade with a handle with no cross piece, concealing it on his right side. When the guard's checking him, normally that would be the sword would be on your left side, so they would check there and there'd be nothing there, but he's got it hidden on his right side. This dagger would have been about 18 inches in length. Again, a blade with a handle, no cross piece. And then you've got Eglon. What a name describes him as being a very fat man. He's portrayed in the story as not only being physically fat, but also mentally dull. Right? He's, he, he does not respond to uh, intelligently when instructing, when there is a, a man who comes before him who is being tribute. This is not a friendly individual. Sure, he's bringing tribute, but no, when people come and bring tribute... It's not because they want to, right? It's, it's usually because they're underneath their, the leadership of this other individual, and they're doing this in order that they not get killed themselves, right? We don't want to be killed. We don't want to be attacked by the Moabites, and so we're going to bring this tribute to bring about peace. Well, Ehud has a secret message for the king, and of course, the king falls for the ruse, hook, line, and sinker. Eglon hears there's a secret message, so he says, you know, all right, silence. And all his attendants say, oh, okay, I guess it's time for us to leave. So they, out the door they go, leaving Eglon and this foreign actor alone together. And there they are on the roof chamber. Roof chamber is where the, uh, the cool evening, evening breeze would blow, so this would have been the uh, place to go just to relax and I enjoy the cool evening air, and apparently there is a private restroom chamber up there as well. Ehud repeats that he has a message. This time he says it's from God. Eglon staggers to his feet, and by the time he rises, he is met with the dagger from Ehud's hand thrust into his belly. Here's the message, and it is the dagger. Again, Ehud doesn't even try to get the dagger back. It just it goes in and it gets swallowed up, and it says the dung came out. The means of Ehud's escape is a little bit ambiguous. It says that he locks the doors. He went out onto the porch, and the, it's the this is what's called a hapax legomena, and that's a word. If you've never heard it before, you may never hear it again. But it simply means that this word only occurs one time in the biblical text, in no other places. And so the Hebrew is a little bit ambiguous. What does it mean he went out by the porch? Well, there are some scholars who believe that he literally slid down the waste shaft from the toilet chamber in order to escape. Yeah, yeah. The guards, seeing the door is locked, they want to give the king his privacy until the embarrassment for waiting for the king to unlock the door is greater than the embarrassment that would be had if they came upon the king using the toilet. And so we have our story. I guess it's not the complete story. Let's, let's finish the story here, just a few more verses. Uh, the, the, uh, the account of the deliverance from the Moabites. Ehud escaped, this is verse 26, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill of Ephraim. The people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, 
For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the, ford, seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped, for Moab was sub- so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Again, what a story. Depending on your perspective, you might look at those details and chuckle and laugh. It might be humorous. You might think some of the details are kind of gross, and some of the details kind of are. So again, we ask the question, okay, now what do we do with that story? <laughs> like, how do we think about this? How does, if, if all Scripture is profitable and is, 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 instructs us, it is useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, training, and righteousness, how is this text that way? How do we think about these things? Many have read this text and scratched their heads. Okay, how do we make sense and find application for today? And as as I was studying for this passage, I, I was reading different commentators and seeing how they were dealing with the text and what they were thinking about it, and came across some interesting things. Um, so, several tried to moralize the text in a variety of ways. So there's one commentator that says, ah, yes, we should be like Ehud. He had some problems, but he found clever solutions to his problems, and he overcame them through these clever means. Okay. There were others that said, uh, don't be like Ehud. He used treachery and deception to accomplish his purposes. So we should not be like Ehud. There's a cautionary tale in this text. Okay. What was the author trying to get us to understand? That is the question that we need to ask. What was the author seeking to try to communicate? Was he, was he presenting this story so that we could just kind of figure out how to moralize the text and say, oh yes, uh, we should either be like Ehud or maybe we shouldn't be like Ehud. I don't really know. It's kind of hard to tell. Or is there something else seeking to be communicated through this story? I think this text shows us a few things. I think it shows us that the Bible is not interested in sanitizing history. The authors know that history is a bit messy. The history of the Jewish people is a messy history, and that's, that's part of the point. The story is messy. Ehud was a treacherous man. He was a deceptive man. He used Canaanite tactics to accomplish his purposes through deception and trickery in order to assassinate this man. And yet, God used Ehud to accomplish his purposes. If the people were living and if they were seeking to abide by God's word, God, you know, they, they would have simply gone out against Eglon in, in battle in other ways. But Ehud used Canaanite tactics, and yet God worked through that to accomplish his purposes. By all accounts, Ehud is not a model leader. And yet again, he was the one that God used. 
So we see God is the one at work here. We've got Othniel. God raises up Othniel to accomplish his purposes. The cycle goes around again. God raises up Ehud to accomplish his purposes. And the land has rest, this time for 80 years. Two generations seem to remember God this time around, that the rest lasted longer. As we move through this, there's, there's part of me that, that takes a look at the, this detail. The, the land had rest for X number of years. And of course, it's speaking of their they're not in judgment anymore. They're not uh, underneath the hand of, of some oppressor of some kind. There's no Eglon. There's no Cushan Rishathium, the double wicked one ruling over them. And yet, part of me wonders if, if perhaps the author was intending even that statement, the land had rest for X number of years, intended that to be a little bit of, a little bit of a, an indictment all on its own. I mean, what, what were these people supposed to be doing in the land? God had commanded the people to drive out the inhabitants, but the land had rest. God told them, hey, don't intermarry with this people, but during this time of rest, that is the time that the people were living in wickedness. That's, it, it took that time, but those 80 years, the, the wickedness increased to the point that as we're going to continue on and see the cycles go around again, the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's going to be a continual theme. It takes those years of rest for that evil to build and unfold. That's what's happening during those restful years. They're not doing what they ought to have been doing during those years. God doesn't have to rescue these people. These are the, we, we talked about this last week, about how where it says they cried out to the Lord. We think of that and say, oh, they're repenting. That's not what the word means. Whenever the, the language of crying out is used, it simply means just that. They, they cried out. They were in pain. They were in anguish. And so they cried out, God, help us. But in order to communicate the concept of repentance, other language is always present whenever that word, those words are used. So again, this is the kind of crying out to the Lord that many do today when they encounter hardship. They have no relationship to God outside of when they're in trouble. Then it's, oh God, help me. That's the relationship of the people to this faithful God who has delivered them now twice in our book. You know, the people still are not truly repentant. And so, from sin to suffering to supplication to salvation, we have the second cycle is complete. Finally, our third judge that is present in chapter 3, we have Shamgar. And Shamgar only gets one verse. Well, poor Shamgar. Verse 31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And that's all we know about Shamgar. That's it. Just this one obscure judge using an obscure weapon in this obscure story. 
bringing an obscure victory that we know nothing else about. What do we make of this? Well, what, let's, let's examine the details that we do have. Shamgar. This is, Shamgar is not an Israelite name. That is not a Hebrew name. So once again, for the second time out of three judges, we have a non-Israelite being raised up to be the judge. It's a Canaanite name. Second, it says he's the son of Anath. And we might think, oh, his dad is Anath. But no, actually, Anath is not the name of just a regular human being. This is the name of a Canaanite deity. This is a false god. We might say Shamgar, servant of Anath, is one way it could be translated. Shamgar was likely another proselyte that God used to deliver Israel. He was converted. He saw the truthfulness of who God was and and who Yahweh was, and he converted unto Judaism. He uses an ox goad. Well, what is an ox goad? An ox goad is a long spear-like tool. It's got a point at one end used to prod oxen to go where they're supposed to go, to do what they're supposed to do, to kind of poke them along, to to direct them, guide them. And then on the other end, it had a spade-like tool that was used for a variety of purposes. It could dig a trench for watering. It could uh, shovel uh, manure. It could do all sorts of things. It was used for a variety of purposes. But it was about six feet long, and it's got this sharp end on one side and this spade-like tool on the other. And he killed 16 Philistines with that tool. It's not clear that if he did it all at once or if this was a lifetime total, that's, that's, that's ambiguous from the text, but it is clear that God used this man to save Israel. He also saved Israel. And it's interesting at this point, a different word is used. Most of the time we have these judges and they're called judges because the language of the text is this individual judged Israel. Well, here we have the language of saved. He saved Israel. It's an obscure story, an obscure judge with an obscure weapon, bringing about an obscure victory that we know nothing else about. So again, we have to ask the question, what do we make of this? You know, I once heard a sermon from this text, and it was, was, the entire sermon was just this one verse. And the point of that sermon was, well, you know, Shamgar, he didn't have a sword, but he did have an ox goad. You might not have the tools that you need for your tasks in life, but what has God given you? You just got to use the tools that God has given you. And that was his conclusion for what Shamgar was trying to teach us. I don't think that's what the author of Judges is trying to communicate. That we're just supposed to look at this story and say, well, you know, Shamgar had just used the tool in front of him, so maybe that's what I should do too. I don't think that's the point. Moralizing misses the entire point of the passage. Again, this, I think the obscurity of this is part of the point where the author's just like, okay, yep, here's another guy that existed. God used him to accomplish his purposes, to deliver his people. This again shows us the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful people. The faithfulness of God to an unfaithful people. God is the primary actor here in each of these stories. We find that God, throughout all of redemptive history, God often accomplishes His purpose through unlikely means. 
displaying His faithfulness to a forgetful people. I've titled this message, Unlikely Deliverers, because these men, this is not what you expect to see. Like, these aren't the leaders that we expect to see. These aren't the leaders that the people would have chosen for themselves. I mean, these aren't the ones that are just the, the shining lights, the shining examples of the model Israelites. Some of them weren't even Israelites. They're Canaanites. And yet, it's not that we look to these men as the heroes of the story or the villains of the story. Rather, we see that it is God who is at work using whoever He will to accomplish His purposes and show His faithfulness. And if we get all caught up and wrapped up in in looking at these men as, as heroes of the faith, these great leaders that have gone out and done these great things for Israel, we're going to miss some of what the author of Judges is trying to show us. Because oftentimes it is the character or even the lack thereof of the judges themselves that's part of the story. That's part of God's judgment upon the people. Even in the midst of God's deliverance, we see the depravity of the people within the judges of themselves and shows the harrowingness of the story. We'll see that later on, even with men that often get lifted up on pedestals like Gideon. We'll see even his failings. Of course, we know Samson's weaknesses as well. These are flawed men. God still used them. This was a forgetful people. They forgot their God. But God didn't forget them. And that should be our focus. The real hero of these stories, the real hero of the book of Judges is God. As we continue to see, there is the need for the king. As these cycles go round and round again, as we come to the end, oh, there was was rest for 80 years. Shamgar also saved Israel. What are we going to find when we hit chapter 4, verse 1? The people of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Come on, guys. (laughs) What are you doing? And yet, God remains faithful. So this is what the author wants us to see and know. As he drives us along in the story, as we go through this, this descending circle and descending cycle throughout the book of Judges, the author keeps driving us towards this point that we need the king. The Israelites needed the king. So he portrays this contrast between the worsening wickedness of Israel against God's continued covenant faithfulness. God didn't have to save Israel. Their cries were not accompanied by true repentance. And yet, despite their sin, God remains faithful to the covenant that He made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob covenant through which would one day bring the Messiah into the world when the King would finally come. And so as we think about these judges, as we think about Othniel and Shamgar, two Canaanite individuals, as we think about Ehud and the messiness 
that is there with the story of the deliverance from Eglon and the comedy that is present even within all of that as well. We just continue to see the testament of God's faithfulness even as the people wax worse and worse. God's faithfulness remains. And that's what the author's doing. Because we see this, we went through three judges in one chapter. As we continue on through the book, there, there's going to be a couple other judges that have a very short one verse, two verse appearance. And then there's other, other judges that have several chapters to them, that the stories begin to get longer as, as, as the author continues to drive us in and reveal to us the wickedness of the people and the continued decline of society. At the very beginning, the author is setting the stage for us. This is a faithful God, even as we're going to see this continued decline. God remains faithful. And so we should re- remember that and, and thank our God for that. Because we know that we are much too much like the Israelites. People want to moralize the text, be like Ehud, be like Othniel, etc., And we know we are actually more like the Israelites. But we praise God that He is that covenant faithful God. As as the book of of, um, 1 Timothy says that if we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. That's our God. And that's the point. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you accomplish your purposes, sometimes through unlikely means, or sometimes it's even hard for us to see how you're accomplishing your purposes because it, it's just so obscure to us, and yet you are, you are doing so. I thank you that we can trust in you in this reality, and Lord, I thank you that even as we go through seasons of life when we are faithless ourselves, when we abandon you and we do not give proper care and consideration to you and to your word when we forget you practically in our lives, you do not forget us. You remain faithful. So I thank you for that and I pray that we would be drawn ever unto you. I pray that we would love you, serve you, worship you all the more for your mercy is more than all of our sin. And we praise you for that reality. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.